Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of Exodus, this wonderful story of the life of Israel as they have been delivered from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, as we begin over these next weeks, a review of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, or as it actually is, the Ten Words. Look with me in verse 3 of chapter 20. This is our passage for this morning. They say good things come in small packages. I certainly hope so. Verse 3 reads, You shall have no other gods before me. That's it. That's our passage this morning. Please pray with me. Father, we... We're here this morning because you have transformed our hearts from slaves to children. We're here this morning because we desire to hear our Father speak. Lord, speak to us through your word. Speak to our minds that we may learn. Speak to our Hearts that we may feel the power of your words. Speak to us so that our lives can be transformed, that we would bring glory to you in all that we do. Lord, make this passage written thousands of years ago. Make it come alive this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. It's been three months since God has delivered Israel from Egypt prior to their deliverance. 400 years had passed before God had made himself known to them by sending his servant Moses. And sadly, 400 years of slavery, 400 years of cruelty, 400 years of immersion in an Egyptian culture eroded everything that Israel knew about God. But now God has made himself known and deliverance has finally come to this nation, this people known as the people of God, known as Israel. And he got it, God made himself known in a variety of ways. And now in the giving of these commandments, We begin with the first. He lays a foundation for the future of Israel, the future of this nation. He lays a foundation for their relationship that they are to have more than just a love for his law, but they are to have a love for God himself. These commandments known as the the Decalogue are the foundations for all of life in, in Israel. And at its core, these commands to Israel bring 
bring an anticipation. They, they bring an expectation that Israel will obey God because they love him. And what we will see is more important even than the revelation that this command gives about our love for God is what is behind this command is God's love for his people. A love that is vividly on display as God speaks directly to Israel. As God comes on top of Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning and dark clouds and smoke. In a vivid way, God speaks to them. That they might experience the full force of his love and care for them. And in the prologue of the Ten Commandments, God recounts to Israel all that he has done for them in verse 1 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. Your God, not just corporately, but individually, personally. Your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He has acted graciously on their behalf. He has been faithful to them. He has acted powerfully on their behalf. And he has acted lovingly on their behalf. He has saved them because as we read earlier in chapter 19, Israel is his treasured possession. Treasured by God. Treasured possession. And before he gives his law to them, he wants them to remember a a reminder to never forget how precious they are to him. And those are the same words that God speaks over you, that you are his treasured possession. You are precious to him. Embedded in this very short passage are two realities that make their way through every book of the Bible. And those realities are God's love for his people and our appropriate response to love him in return. Those are the two realities that we see throughout scripture. God loves his people. And in return, God's people love him back. And I've entitled this message this morning, Pilgrim's Promise. Pilgrim's Promise, because there are two promises that I think are prominent in this passage. The first one, and when I say pilgrims, that is pilgrims with an apostrophe S, meaning our promise, Pilgrim's Promise. The first promise is the one Israel is asked or commanded by God to make, and that That promise that they're commanded or required to make to God is to love and worship and obey him alone. And as pilgrims on an exodus, on their journey, who will one day reach the promised land, this is to be their pilgrim's progress. We will love, we will worship, and we will obey God. And in response to God making them his treasured possession and in delivering them from bondage, they're required to exclusively 
give their love to him, to give their worship to him, to give their obedience to him, and not to, as what is behind this passage, you shall have no other gods, small g, before me, is that we are not, they are not, to give their affection, their love, their obedience, their worship to idols, to other gods, to false gods that were a part of their previous life in Egypt. This passage is the first time God directly addresses idolatry in Scripture. In an indirect way, he dealt with Egypt's idolatry, if you remember, by destroying almost every god that Egypt worshipped. Now, the Lord is, is keenly aware, very aware, that Israel spent 400 years living in a land of many gods, what it would be known as a polytheistic nation. A nation that worshipped many gods. And it's not surprising then that Israel would adopt these gods as their own. That they would worship these false deities. That they would practice this. And we see this, that it, it is a struggle they have throughout their entire history. In Ezekiel, past the exodus... Ezekiel 27, and I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were unwilling to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. This is a problem throughout Israel's history. Jonah, or Joshua tells us in 40 years later that, that as they enter the promised land, the nation of Israel must put away the false gods that they worshiped. They must put these false gods away and not as their fathers had worshiped them. They too must not worship these gods. And in Joshua 24, 14, Joshua says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods, small g, that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And it is, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This commandment comes first because all the other commandments rise and fall on their adherence to this one. All the other commandments rise and fall. It, it sets forth for all the other commandments an expectation of absolute priority. Absolute priority because no other commandment will have meaning if this one is not kept. You shall have no other gods before me. So God begins here, begins the Decalogue with this commandment because idolatry is a problem that has always gripped the human race. It has gripped Israel. It will 
always grip Israel. And it is a problem so prevalent to Israel and to all of humanity that it is a problem most talked about in Scripture. This is the one problem that, that overrides all of the problems mentioned in Scripture. Idolatry. The worship of other gods. And it is a problem that Israel will face the moment they enter the promised land, Canaan, because it is a land that is polytheistic. It is a land filled with many gods. It is a land filled with temptation. It is a place that they will have to have a commitment to this, a promise. You shall have no other gods before me. Patrick ends in his commentary, says the first commandment gets to the heart of what it means to be God's people, not only in terms of what the Israelites have left, but also in terms of where they are going to another polytheistic land, Canaan. And the same is with us. Prior to coming to Christ, we worshiped many things. We struggled with idols in our lives. Money, possessions, power, pleasure. And coming to Christ, we still live in a land that is polytheistic. We still live in a land that is gripped by the worship of other gods, by idolatry. And so by starting with this first commandment, God kind of is overturning the apple cart of their religious experience and reworking their entire view of worship. It is, it's a remarkable statement in light of how long they have lived in a land of many gods. And as we'll see later, this continues to be an ongoing problem because not far down the road, Israel, while Moses is on Mount Sinai, Israel creates Another God called a golden calf. But let me say this. In reality, there are truly no other gods. No other gods who exist. Yet the Bible continually speaks about other gods. Idols have no real existence. So what's the point in telling them not to have other gods? What's the point in telling us not to engage in idolatry? It's because the human race so easily creates its own false gods that hold power over us. It's what Israel did. They created false gods that hold sway over them, a spiritual power. Ironically, As the creator of these false gods, these false gods became their deity and had power over them. Now, our creator, the living God, he's the one who has power over us and power over all those false gods. And he is the one that we worship. And so these these folks here... God is warning them. God is is saying, listen, you make this promise because this is what you will face. This is what stands before you. Idolatry is a serious crime in my eyes, says the Lord. A serious crime. So serious, it merits the death penalty. Numbers 25 and Deuteronomy 13 reveal the declarations that, that are made by God to those who worship idols. They must die and die they did 
the rejection and rebellion against God by worshiping false gods, by worshiping idols, uh, things other than God. Is, it's a wicked abomination in the eyes of God, and it deserves death. So ultimately, someone has to die. And someone had to die for the idolatry we engaged in. And that someone was Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate price, who died for the sin of idolatry, but not his own sin, but for our sin. Now, what, what is idolatry? Idolatry is a heart that has been stolen away from God. Let me say that again. Idolatry is a heart that has been stolen away from God. It is, it is giving away affections, time, energy, and trust in a thing that is not the living God, but in a little g God that is bankrupt, but usually appears as something good or pleasurable or helpful or useful. It can be wicked as well, but, but idols, which are the inward desires of our heart, have, have a unique ability to draw our attention and to draw our affection to itself. To call out our name. As the, the woman folly does in Proverbs 9. Who calls out to the young man walking on the road. Come, come this way. Come here. Come have all my pleasures. And it's enticing. And it seems good. It offers happiness and hope. Pleasure and provision and future and everything else that can only truly and honestly be fulfilled in God, in Christ. Idolatry turns people away from God, the only God who is truly concerned about our welfare and who can do something about it. That's what idolatry does. It turns our heart away. And God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, when he says before me, it's not like he, God is saying, There's, you have all these gods and I just want them to line up behind me because I want to be first in line. No, no. God is saying there are no other gods and you will bring no other gods before me in our relationship. You will never have another affection that supersedes the affection you have for me. Not that affection is bad. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love one another. Those are good things. But above it all is loving God. And Jonah gives us this chilling warning about serving idols. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's the danger of idols. When I was 11 years old, the area we lived in, every summer, carnivals would come and set up in the local parking lot of the stores down the street. And 
first time going and went with a couple of friends and you see all the rides and the games. And so we, we pick, we pick the most, the, 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 the most challenging ride of all the one that spins and up and down and all around. And, um, I was unaware of how easily motion sickness I get. And this carnival, I just had the greatest desire to go to this carnival. This, this was, it promised so much to me. And the first thing we did is we got on this ride. And we got off that ride and my friends were standing around just laughing about the ride. And I'm laying on the ground wondering how I can throw up upside down. I am, I am laying there green and thinking, I hate carnivals. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and his companion Faithful enter this town called Vanity Fair where they discover everything the world has to offer. It was a, a place that, that interrupted their progress towards the celestial city in the same way that idolatry halts our progress towards the promised land. Well, Christian and Faithful discovered that Vanity Fair is a carnival a carnival of idols that did not deliver. Let me read to you what Bunyan writes. They heard what was going on long before they saw anything of the streets of that town. There was such yammering and jammering and shouting and calling and just plain noise that faithful and Christian could hardly talk to each other. Shoulder to shoulder, they walked into town and immediately a crowd of vendors started to call to them. Sound familiar? Some of them, it seemed, a Christian had voices that sounded like Apollyon, the, the devil in Pilgrim's Progress. The goods in the stall looked bright and new. But when Christian looked closer, he saw that the gold on the jewelry was really cheap paint. The precious stones only colored glass. The fruit was rotten. The china only clay and the charms worthless. That's the world we live in, brothers and sisters. That's a description that's all around us. You shall have no other gods before me because this is all they can deliver. This is all they offer. This is all that you gain. This is not who you worship. This is not who you love. Now, idolatry is not just a problem of unbelievers or of Israel. It's a problem we see throughout scripture and our modern day world as well. Look, look ahead a few centuries to a man in scripture that we well know a man named Solomon. He is a tragic example of somebody who, who knew God, who who had his life ruined by the worship of other gods, by the worship of idols. Now, Solomon had it all. He had wisdom. He had prosperity. He had reputation. He had power. And yet, he eventually exchanges all of it. All of it. For the worship of created things. He first takes foreign wives against God's warning not to do so. And what do they do? These foreign wives turn his heart to the gods that they worshipped. 
We see that in 1 Kings 11. How could a man who was so wise be so stupid? How could he turn from the living God to idols after all that God has done for him? Because God told him, if you do this, I will tear your kingdom from you. And that's exactly what happens. That's the consequence of worshiping false gods. That's the consequence of idolatry. How, how could a man so wise be so stupid? And we think, oh, I could never do that. Listen. The answer is simple. God was not enough. That's it. God was not enough. Something more was offered. Something what seemed pleasurable. Something that seemed to make life better. Oh, didn't we see that in Genesis? When Adam and Eve stood in the garden. He determined that the life God had given him was not enough. Solomon wanted things that God had not provided. Does that sound remotely familiar in your life at times? Now, fast forward to the New Testament, and we see that idolatry is still a raging problem. And as as we should know, idolatry is not just an Old Testament term. It just doesn't appear in the Old Testament. It's not. But in the New Testament, it's not primarily three-dimensional objects of wood and, and stone, but desires of the heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of the love of money as idolatry when he says, No one can serve two masters. John tells us of the danger of idolatry in his epistles. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. In Colossians 3, Paul says that coveting is idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Idolatry is a serious problem. And so it must be our pilgrim's promise. We will have no other gods before him. But that's just the first promise. The pilgrim's apostrophe, yes. But now there's another pilgrim's promise, no apostrophe. And that is God's promise that he makes to us. The second promise is not one that Israel makes to God, but one that he makes to them. Embedded in this small passage is God's promise to always be their God. To keep his covenant promise that they will always be his people. You shall have no other gods. Why? Because I am the exclusive God. I'm the only God. And I am your God. I am your God. And you are my treasured possession. This passage is a powerful declaration of God's love for you, for his people. It's a a passage of protection. Don't have other gods because they will destroy your life. They will ruin 
all that is good that I have provided, the Lord says. It is a passage of warning. It is God desiring to keep Israel from being destroyed by idols. This command is a deep expression of God's goodness and grace. And not just to Israel, but to you and to me. Oh, brothers and sisters, you shall have no other gods before him. It it speaks of God's exclusive love for his people, his chosen people, his treasured possession. The idea behind this is the idea of, of relationship. And it is the idea of a marriage relationship, a covenant bond not to be broken, a covenant bond that is sacred, that God has made with Israel. And now he's saying Israel is to make with him. You shall have no other gods before me. And I I am the Lord who promises I will always keep my covenant with you. Even when you break your covenant with me, I will keep my covenant with you because I am your Lord and Savior. Or Ross Blackburn in his commentary said, the unmistakable point is that the Lord's jealous exclusivity is rooted in love. A love we understand as entirely appropriate between a husband and a wife. This command reflects God's love and deep concern for Israel. And that's the motive behind this commandment. I love my people. And, and he gives this command Because he loves us to protect us from the very things that will destroy us. It's a law for sure, but it is a law grounded in gospel and grace. The constant refrain throughout the Bible is that idols are not to be worshipped. Not just because idolatry is is wrong, and it is, but because, because this, listen, other gods cannot save. What we look for to bring us hope in life, bring us freedom in life, bring us joy in life. Those things cannot save. They cannot deliver. And that is what God is saying here. You and I have lived under the the slavery and power of sin. We've lived under the God of this world. We toiled under him. He was a cruel and harsh taskmaster. And we did his bidding, seeking after things, money and power and prestige. Those things never rescued us. Idolatry is wrong because other gods cannot save. And other gods do not deserve the worship and glory that our God deserves. In February of 1994, at the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference, CJ gave a teaching on this very topic. He spoke on idols of the heart. And it was the first time at any of our pastors' conference, and it was really the first time that as a pastor, this group of pastors, we really heard an extensive teaching on idolatry. And it was it was life-changing. It was transformative. And it, it changed not only the way we thought, it changed our whole language. We began to think, 
like, well, this is an idol of my heart. You know, those kind of comments. Or, or what am I worshiping more than God? Or this is an idol of your heart. And we're identifying idols in every other person's life. Listen, the reality is idols are real. They're real today as they've ever been. And, and my concern is because this teaching has been around so long, I, I think there are some dangers we need to be aware of when speaking about idolatry. And, and let me give you three dangers. The first one is thinking of idols as something that happens only in ignorant cultures that still worship images of stone and wood, like India or Burma or, or other places. That is simply untrue. Idols far exceed what happens in those cultures. They, idolatry, idolatry happens even right now, right here. The second danger is thinking that we have been so well taught on the topic of idols and we know what idols of the heart are, that we are free from its grip. Listen, the reason the New Testament is not silent about them is that they still capture our hearts. And then the third danger is that we've become numb to the word idol. We've heard teaching. We've heard the word so many times that it doesn't smack us the way it should. We don't seriously consider that, hey, you know, there might be in my life another God who is before God. Just because we know about idols doesn't mean we don't have them. Paul tells us in Corinthians that that knowledge puffs up. Be warned that, that what we know doesn't mean what we do. It's easy to become numb to a teaching you've heard so many times and think that you've got a real handle on. We have a powerful adversary named Satan who does all he can to tempt and entice and draw us away to other gods. And we are in a spiritual warfare And we must guard our hearts lest we fall. What are some signs or emotions that reveal something has become an idol to you? You see, there are are things that reveal idols in our lives. Anger is, is one. James 4 talks about, you know, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Because you want something and you're not getting it. Well, and it says, because you do not ask God. Anger can reveal that there is idolatry in our heart. We want something so badly, we're not getting it. I'm going to fight to get it. Trying to exercise control. Or you've heard the phrase helicopter moms or helicopter dads. or I mean, just, just the idea that we can control life. We can control all what happens in life. And that because we are in control, it's because we know we can do a much better job than God. If I was God, I would have never let this happen in my life. And so we try to exercise control over our circumstances, over our health, over our relationships, over our jobs, over our finances, over our children, because we don't trust how God will handle things. That is having another God 
before God. Or fear. Or anxiety. Even peace. Because we find peace in substitute gods. Oh, I find peace when I sit down in front of this comfort food. I find peace when I can just vegetate in front of the television. I find peace in other things. Or hope in other things. I find hope. Putting hope in a government or putting hope in money. And there are more even subtle Areas of idolatry, our ideas and our preferences and our opinions. They can have a deep hold on us. We can elevate them over our love for God. Let me tell you, though, the the one sign I think is most prevalent that can reveal idolatry in our lives is complaining. Is complaining. Complaining about the traffic, complaining about the long lines, complaining about the food, complaining, whatever. Complaining about service at a restaurant, complaining about my life, complaining about my house, complaining about my car. Complaining. These are problems of the heart. That are talked about in the New Testament. John tells us in 1 John 5.21. Little children. Keep yourselves from idols. You get the picture. Many of the things that can become idols. are, Are things that are good. And our response when we don't have them. Reveals how much they mean to us. It's. It's a battleground. We were studying, we finished up our study on the book of Job yesterday morning with our, with our Bible study group. And, and one of the things we talked about was that, that the battleground in Job's life was Job. He was the battleground. The battleground for his affections, the battleground for his worship, the battleground for his love for God. And at times, what we may not realize is that we can sometimes cross enemy lines unknowingly. We drift over into idolatry subtly. We cross over into enemy lines and just not aware. Little children, keep yourselves free from idols. You shall have no other gods before me. Now this is all rooted. God, God's promise that he will be our God. That, that he loves us. And, and what I love in, in 1 John is that he tells, he tells the, the reader, he tells in this letter, keep yourselves free from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is John's pastoral affectionate care for those in this church, in the churches that this letter is being written to. But earlier in chapter three, John says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, we are children of God and he is protecting us. He's protecting us. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he repeats it again at the end of 1 John 5 where he says, Little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. Brothers and sisters, like, like Israel, we were slaves of Egypt. We were, we were slaves of the Egypt of our sin. And like Israel, God delivered us from the domain of darkness into his marvelous light, through the unconditional love of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for our sinful idolatry, who suffered for our sin, who delivered us. And has offered us eternal life. And like Israel, Jesus came not only to deliver us from our slavery and from our idolatry, but to give us the ability and the power by his spirit to no longer be idol worshipers. The the answer is simple. The answer is simple on how do we do that? How do we love God? Many years ago, Marilyn and I saw a movie called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And I don't know how many saw it. But the one thing I remember about that movie was the father. And every problem that ever existed, he grabbed a bottle of Windex. And he sprayed Windex on it. You got a, you got a pimple? Put Windex on it. You got a headache? Put Windex on your head. You got a knee scrape? Put Windex on it. Your car's broken down? Just put Windex on it. It just works. It was, a, it was the simple problem. Well, let me give you the simple problem to our situation here, to our problem of idolatry. John says this in 1 John two fourteen. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You want to know how you battle idolatry? The word of God abides in you. David wrote, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Brothers and sisters, let's keep our lives free from idols. Amen. Father, thank you for your word and the expression of love you give to us in your word. Lord, we are so grateful that you have been faithful to us, to protect us, to warn us, to keep us. And Lord, help us this morning, we pray, that you would help us keep our hearts free from idols. That we might not have any other gods before you, but we might worship you and worship you alone. For your glory, which is so deserved. In Christ's name, amen.